Well, good morning. Welcome to worship here at North Canton Chapel. It's good to see you guys today. Uh, as you heard Pastor Ryan say, this week actually is part two of a two-part series called B that's centered on the nature of the church. But there's this week in the middle where we had a whole lot of snow. And um, I believe that snow actually has like a memory depletion effect. So don't feel bad if you're like, wait, what was two weeks ago? I don't even remember that. That's okay. Here's what I want you to do. Go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word, whether that's a hard copy or something on your phone. Or if you'd like, you can follow along on the screens uh, as I read behind me. We're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. So I'm going to back up to where we were two weeks ago just so we can get the context. 1 Peter chapter 2. Here's what Peter says to us. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct, honorable, or conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, you may have noticed something, uh, maybe it's noticed it in your worship guide or on posters around the building. We kind of have a new rally cry around here, and it's something that we want to be about as a church. And if you've seen it, it goes like this. We want to be the church who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone. Now, my hope is that all of us could maybe recite that from memory at some point. Like if somebody says, hey, what is the North Canton Chapel really about? You could say, well, we exist to be the church who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone. So two weeks ago, Pastor Ryan gave us the first part of that, church who makes much of Jesus. And today we're going to take a look at the second part, every day to everyone. So consider these two weeks kind of your 30,000 foot view into what makes the North Canton Chapel tick. But first, a quick story. Vince never meant to change the world, but he did. Never meant to make a statement or ruffle feathers. He was just a quiet pastor in a small town. Vince lived in a community of coal miners, their backs bent from years of labor, their fingernails black around the edges, their faces dimmed by the bleak earth and even bleaker hopes. But Vince felt at home there as their pastor. He shared his modest middle-class income with them, giving away his clothes, his food, his possessions, as anybody else might have need. Sounds an awful lot like Acts chapter 2. He loved and was loved. It was a very hopeful situation for the 25-year-old church planter. But things took a turn. The committee that sponsored Vince's ministry there decided that he wasn't fit to be a pastor. He was too among. He lived too loosely. He wasn't becoming of what they thought a pastor should be. I mean, giving away your shirts and your clothes and your shoes, really, Vince, that's, that's a little too much, don't you think? 
And so Vince was fired. It had to be a crushing blow, not just for him personally, but also for the people that he loved, the influence that wouldn't be there, the mission that wouldn't happen, the shell of a dream never realized. And so Vince left the ministry, exchanging his pulpit for paints, the church for a canvas, and sermons for brush strokes. Vince never meant to change the world. He never intended to make a statement or ruffle feathers. But in the spring of 1889, one year before his own death, the 36-year-old Vincent Van Gogh painted this. Almost, there it is. Super famous painting, right? You've probably all seen this somewhere in your life. It's one of the most famous paintings in the world. And what first stands out is this like colossal sky, this like apocalyptic moon, these stars that look like living. The painting almost moves, doesn't it? But I believe that Vincent wanted us to see something else here. Have you ever noticed the lights? Every light in every building, and the whole town is on, except for one, the church. I believe this is not just a painting about stars. I believe that this is about something else that Vincent wanted us to see. I believe the idea of a cold, stale, missionless church sat in Vincent's memory so long that it soured and fermented. I believe there's something much more enduring here in this painting, and it's this. A church that exists for its own sake is a church that's missing the point. Don't be a church with the lights off. So if we're gonna be a church who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone, We've got three choices that we've got to make, and here they are. The first one is you need to choose who you are. Look again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Here's what he says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, choose who you are. In verses 9 and 10, Peter gives us six things, and you can go back there and look at them, six identity words, but then he continues his thought by giving us two more. Sojourner. We don't use that word an awful lot, do we? It's an old word, and it's like if you, were a, a, you owned a thousand-acre estate, and I came to you and I said, hey, I'm just passing through, but I got some work to do. Can I stay like in that far corner of, of your land for a little while? I'm just passing through. It's temporary, it's loaned, it's never the ultimate goal. That's a sojourner. And then exile. Exile is like Peter taking like a highlighter, bold, italic, underline going, I want you to take that idea of sojourner and make it bigger. And exile is somebody who says, I'm not even just passing through. This is not my home. Um, I, I'm really beginning to feel uncomfortable here because I'm really eager to get back to where I belong. That's an exile. Pastor and theologian Eugene Peterson would translate this passage like this. He'd say, friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourself cozy. I'm going to get really dark really quick for a second. 
Do you know what I think the greatest lie that Satan has told the American church? He has convinced us that being a Christian can be comfortable. And the sad news is that for decades, many Christians have swallowed that lie hook, line, and sinker. Like Jesus came so that I could be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Nope. Here's what that's like. It's like the church has been sitting on a couch eating potato chips for decades, enjoying this nice, easy, fairly comfortable life. No one's bothering us. No one's asking too much from us. We're kind of enjoying our time in the sun. For the lifetimes of most everybody in this room, the church has had it embarrassingly easy. The couch is comfortable. But then the living room door bursts open and we wake up and suddenly it's legal to abort babies in New York at 39 weeks. And leaders in our country are immoral to the point where it is both expected and excused. And the church sits there with our mouth open going, what happened? What went wrong? What do we do? But then from behind the open door, we hear a voice calling us, and it says this. Okay, church, it's time to wake up. It's time to go. I need you to run a marathon like tomorrow. It's go time. Let's have at it. And we bite our bottom lip, and we go, I don't think I can do it. Because we know in our hearts we should have been training. We should have been working out. And we're afraid that it's too late. And the voice slyly says, okay, I got a deal for you. You don't have to work out. You don't have to run a marathon. You don't have to be countercultural. You don't have to do anything risky. It's okay. I'll tell you what. I'm going to come back tomorrow. And I will carry you for 20 miles. You don't have to do anything. Sit back. I'll see you tomorrow. Do you want to know why the church has lost its influence? Not is losing or will lose, has lost its influence. It's because it's easier to be carried by culture than it is to do the hard work of redefining it. And so the door closes, and we settle back in our couch. What will the answer be? What will we do? I'm just going to be really honest with you. This is the stuff that worries me, to be really personal. I worry that we've lost these like gritty impulses for rebellion and restoration. We're intimidated by conversations about gender identity, immigration, sexuality, science, and marriage. We prefer to sit on the couch than get up and run. And so my word is, let's get off the couch and go after these things. Get in the word. Let it rip you up and down and then rebuild you. Pour out your heart to Jesus and let him form you. A couch potato faith is simply not strong enough to withstand what's coming. We've got to choose who we are. Sojourners and exiles. 
Those are identity words, right? We are a people without a country, serving a king that the world doesn't recognize, obeying a law that's only written on our hearts. So what defines us? I'm gonna give us a couple of things that actually, in my experience, define a person. The first thing, we are defined by what we celebrate. We're defined by what we celebrate. I'm gonna put him on the spot, but I spent last Super Bowl with Eric Schroll, who is, in my opinion, one of the world's biggest Philadelphia Eagles fans. Okay, so I went over to Eric Schroll's house for two reasons. One, I wanted to watch the Super Bowl with uh, good friends, have a good time, have good food. But then secondly, because should the Eagles pull off an upset win, I'd be had the opportunity to watch the usually emotionally composed Eric Schroll potentially lose it. And he absolutely did. It was wonderful. Like you could have lit that guy up. He could have powered his house for like 10 minutes with the electricity that was coming out of that guy. It was awesome. Why? Because he's an Eagles fan. What do you celebrate most deeply? Now, Eric is a man of profound spiritual depth and insight, so the metaphor sort of falls apart. But here's the thing. Is what you celebrate consistent with what you see Jesus celebrating? How do you know? Get to the Gospels and watch him. Watch what Jesus celebrates. Sojourners and exiles celebrate lasting change. Here's the second thing that might define us. We're also defined by what we defend. See, I think everybody in this room is wired, hardwired to defend something. The only question is, are you defending worthy things? Are you defending worthy things? I defend my family, my wife, my kids, Right? I think we'd agree those are worthy things to defend. I will defend the rights of the unborn and the dignity of the aged and everybody in between. Why? Because people matter to God. And so for my life, as I eke out my legacy, hopefully when I reach the end, I will be defined as the defender of worthy things. And so there's the question, do you defend worthy things? I didn't ask, can you justify the things that you like as worthy what does Jesus think of the things that you defend? How do you know? What does he defend? Look in the Gospels. What do you see Jesus defending? See what matters to him and join him in his work. Sojourners and exiles defend worthy causes. Another thing, and then we'll move on to the second point. You're defined by what bothers you. So last Thursday, I was having coffee with somebody and uh, we're sitting and I found myself going on this rant about convenience fees. I hadn't really planned on it. It just sort of hit like convenience fees. You know what those things are? Like when you go pay your water bill online or you buy movie tickets and there's like this $7 surcharge on there. I'm like, what is that about? That's stupid. Like you're you're charging me money to save everybody work. This is ridiculous. What's a convenience fee, right? I got so mad about it sitting there in Starbucks. And um, the guy that I was sitting with kind of gave me one of these, which is really humiliating when you're a pastor and you're supposed to know what to do. He looks at me and he goes like, dude, lighten up. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay. See, we get bothered by so many things, right? And it could be convenience fees. It could be your spouse's grammar. Just saying, I love Mandy a lot. It could be all these little things that get under our skin. And pretty soon we become that guy, right? We're bothered by these little idiot things. 
When we get angry, we actually reveal our true identity. That anger that you feel is actually betraying you. When you are defined as a sojourner and an exile, you release your right to get angry about petty things. I believe one of the strongest indictments against the American church today is our misspent anger. Many of us are so busy getting angry, irritated, and frustrated by such paltry, small-minded, lightweight trivialities that when the real issues come along, our allegiances have already been cast, our alliances have been spent, and we have no energy to run the race that Jesus is calling us toward. Disciples are bothered by eternal things. So in summary... Sojourners and exiles celebrate lasting change, defend worthy causes, and are bothered by eternal things. We've got to choose who we are. But there's a second choice we've got to make. We've got to choose what you want. Choose what you want. Do you want to know why we all sin? Here's why we sin. Because we want to. Why do I choose sin? Because I want it. That's a little uncomfortable to just admit that out there for everybody, but like that's why we, we can't break these things in our life, and we all have them, right? We want to. So Peter gives us a command in verse 11. It's a super strong one. It's easy to spot. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Okay, abstain. Abstain from what? Well, the passions of the flesh. Well, that sounds delicious, doesn't it? Like, what, what does he mean by that? The passions of the flesh. Interesting, isn't it, that he doesn't go like, hey, please be good because people are watching you. That's coming up in a minute. But first, he doesn't go to our behavior. He goes to our heart. He says, watch what's deep inside. Be careful what coals you stoke in the furnace of your soul. Watch out for your flesh. Why? Because they wage war against your soul. That phrase in Greek is super powerful. It's like, it's this thing that you wrestle with, and the more you wrestle with it, the more you touch it, the more it poisons you. And so Peter's word is like, hey, take sin seriously in your life. Choose what you want. There's this really interesting condition that um, I was reading about re recently, and it's called aposia. I'm probably saying it wrong, but aposia. And it means the lack of sensation of thirst. Can you imagine what that's like? The lack of sensation of thirst. And it's this terribly destructive thing because people who have this condition over a prolonged period of time can become dehydrated, and their system shuts down without them really even knowing it. They don't know that they're thirsty. So when it comes to sin, I know a lot of Christians who've convinced themselves that the way to conquer sin in my life is to develop some kind of self-imposed spiritual aposia, where I can convince myself that, no, okay, like, I know it's wrong to lust, so, like, I'm going to just kill that desire. Or, like, I know it's wrong to be greedy, and so, like, I don't want money. I, I don't want that. Or, like, I know it's wrong to, to want to do well and be ambitious. That's, like, a weird thing, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and, like, keep that in check. And so we actually kill off our desire, but that doesn't work, does it? Right? Example. Everybody in this room, do this with me. Do not think of a pink elephant. <laughs> what are you all thinking of? Pink elephant. Why? 
Because we can't kill desire. It's there. The way to conquer desire is not to kill it, but to deepen it. To deepen it. Michael Cusick wrote a great book called Discovering the Divine Desire Beneath Sexual Struggle. He writes that the first step when fighting sin is to name your thirst. It's a great word. See if you've ever heard of these. Attention, I long for people to like me. Affection, I long to be delighted in. Affirmation, I long to know that I have what it takes. Acceptance, I long to belong. You ever feel those things? I hope so because they're perfectly normal, beautiful, wonderful yearnings of the human heart. But what does sin do? Sin gets a hold of one of them, wraps it slimy, and then gets like, you get twisted in it, and it becomes something that wages war on our soul. Right? The thirst for attention can lead to heartbreaking consequences, can't it? Some of us, that's our story. The thirst for affirmation, to know that I have what it takes, that can run into the fear of man running your life. The thirst for acceptance, to belong at all costs, can rob you of your dignity because that's what sin does. It twists good things. You can't kill desire by lopping it off. You conquer it by deepening it. This is from Isaiah, right? When God's talking to his people and he says, oh, my people have committed two sins. One, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, And then two, they've hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that don't hold any water. And it's like God going, look, be thirsty, come back to me. I can fill you. I will satisfy you. Don't make broken cisterns that hold no water the place where you hope. Come back to me, deepen your desire. Now, waging war against sin is an intensely personal thing. Right, But before we move on, I want to widen our gaze just a bit, and I want to expand our perspective. Let's not forget that Peter is not just talking about our personal devotions, our quiet time, our just me and Jesus in the closet kind of stuff. He's talking to a church. And so here's what that means. Peter's saying that no matter what I think about church, no matter how excited I am, involved I am, committed I am, no matter how long I've been here, there's a potential fly in the ointment, and here it is. A church will never be more influential than its people are holy. That is a very sobering thought. A church will never be more influential than its people are holy. And so there's your second choice. You gotta choose what you want. Third choice. If we're gonna be a church who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone, choose why you're here. Look in verse 12. Keep your conduct, so now he goes to behavior, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, that's your purpose clause, like, like red flashing light, here you go, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, guess what, that's coming, okay? They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
So there's this big purpose behind this stuff. There's two ideas here that when taken together give us a clue to what our purpose is. The first one is the word good. The word good. Peter says that we ought to be known as people who have honorable deeds. And that word good is not in the Greek. It's not quantitative like gold stars on a, on a bulletin board. It's qualitative. It means like beautiful or exceptional quality. This up close and, and, and personal feeling. So let's stop there. We ought to be known as the people of beautiful deeds. How good is that? But this goodness or this beauty has a point. God's glory. Did you see it? At the end of all things. So that they may glorify God on the day of visitation. Because that's the kind of pastor I want to be, right? I don't want to have my funeral and a bunch of people sitting around talking about me. I'd rather them talk about God and how good he is. That's how I spend my life. That's the kind of church I want to be. And I think that's probably the kind of Christian that you want to be, right? Let's make much of God with our lives, not ourselves. So what needs to be in place for a God-glorifying life? I'm going to give you a couple of things. And to be really clear, this is super personal for me, and it's very fresh, okay? This is like me and Jesus right now in the wood shop, and he's teaching me this stuff. First thing. For a God-glorifying life, give up control. Give up control. It was a May morning in 2010, and um, Karsten, he's our second son, he's 11 now, he was two at the time, came into our room, and he said, I don't feel very good. He's two, right? And we said, okay, you know, so we checked him out. Like, it didn't look like, the, like a cold, could have been the flu, but like Mandy's motherly intuition kicks in, and she says, this is something else. Um, I don't know. We just got to get him to the ER. And I'm going, like, okay. I was ready to blow his nose, but okay. And um, so, like, I popped him in the van. We head down to Sherman Hospital outside Chicago where we lived for a while. And um, so they're checking him in, you know. And he's this little cute little two-year-old kid, you know. So they plop him on the, the little scale. They weigh him. They get his height. You know, they check everything, get his temperature. And then they went to get his pulse. And the nurse's eyes just went, like, and within 30 seconds, there's about nine nurses and doctors that came out of nowhere and they're picking him up and they're strapping him down on a gurney and they're ratcheting him down. And I'm like, hey, wait, time out. Like, dad, hey, info, please tell me what's going on. And they're like wheeling him through the halls and like I'm following him, pushing through doors. And there's one nurse who stays behind and she says, like she looks me dead in the eye. And so if, this is, if you're this kind of nurse, like bravo, because like you got skills, right? And so she looked me dead in the eyes and she says, Mr. Marshall, your son has an incredibly high heart rate. He's been going at 300 beats per minute for the past six hours, we think. And we're gonna try and reset his heart. And I'm like, okay, wait, nope, more info, please. Like, resetting heart, nope, that's like, what are we doing here? Hang on. So long story short, um, we found ourselves in an ambulance headed for downtown Children's Hospital in Chicago. And I'm, Mandy's with Karsten in the ambulance and we're going like 80 miles an hour down the highway and I'm behind in the van like sweating prayers like crazy and we get to the hospital and they did reset his heart. And then like, you know how these days sort of blur together when you're in those situations? And so I found myself, my head finally stopped spinning about 2 a.m. And I'm sitting next to, next to a hospital bed with my boy and he's hooked up to like nine different sensors and electrodes and all this stuff going into a machine and there's these beeping noises. And I'm just sitting there and I'm going like, God, I, you are enough. 
you better be enough because I don't have this. You are enough. You better be enough. And so I get to the end of this experience. Karsten's fine, by the way. His heart's in great shape. Uh, we have a phenomenal doctor. But we get to the end of that experience, and you know what I get to say? I get to say, man, I am an awesome dad. Oh, golly, I got all my emotions in check. Like, I am an emotional bedrock. I am pretty incredible. Like, the rest of you family should be looking at me because, like, I wasn't nervous at all. <clears throat> yeah, no. <laughs> all I get to do is get to the end of that and brag about how good God is and say, we have a God who watches over his children, a God who protects, a God who cares, a God who is with us. Some of you have sat in those rooms and so you know that God's glory isn't shown in my ability but in my inability. His greatness and my control do not inhabit the same space. Here's a second thing I'm gonna give you if you wanna have a God-glorifying life. Give up control and then commit to vulnerability. Commit to vulnerability. You want to glorify God with your life, you have to release your rights or your desire to manage your reputation. The Christian life begins at the crucifixion of my reputation, not the preservation of it. So vulnerability is not just some relational tactic that I do to be nice. Vulnerability is a lot more like what Pastor Micah was talking about earlier, where he says, I am who you say I am. <laughs> I'm gonna be really content being vulnerable because I got nothing. If there's any good in me, it's because of Jesus, period. And so I can be vulnerable because I go, who am I in Christ? I am lost, born a sinner, enemy of God, but because of grace, I am adopted by the Son in the foreknowledge of the Father and sealed by the Spirit. And so I'm actually really good. I'm staying very close to my gospel identity. Here's the third thing. Give up perfection. Give up perfection. Micah said something to me the other week that was beautiful. And he said this. He looked at me in the eye and he goes, you are not the perfecter of you. And I'm like, oh, that's really good. You are not the perfecter of you. Because if I'm the perfecter of me, who gets the credit for my perfection? Me, right? Here's the deal, guys. We sin every single day, and so we ought to repent every single day, and so we ought to be restored every single day. So who gets the glory at the end of every single day? God does. Funny thing is, if you're obsessed with a reputation and a perfect life, you don't need Jesus. Instead, you'll get your best life now or some other Christless, hopeless gospel. But if you are committed to that, living a life that glorifies God, you're also gonna get community because you're gonna let people see the real you. The cost of your perceived perfection is the loss of true community because then you'll let people in. You gotta choose why you're here. You gotta find your way of saying it. Vincent never meant to change the world, never intended to make a statement or ruffle feathers, but his legacy gives us a tragic metaphor for what's at stake if we fail. 
Because I don't want to be a church with the lights off, and neither do you. A church that exists for its own sake is a church that's missing the point. Now, I hope you feel like this is going to be an awesome year at North Canton Chapel. And if you feel like I'm here, like, with one foot on a moving train going, like, come on, come on, come on, get on. This is going to be great. It's because I really believe that Jesus is doing incredible things here, and I don't want you to miss it. We're going to close with a song that's simply called The Church. And it may be new to some of you, so if you don't want to sing, that's okay. But I want you to at least engage the lyrics, which, by the way, is a great thing to do if you ever find yourself not knowing the song. Just sit back and and engage the lyrics. Here are the words. We are the change the world is waiting for. We've got a love the world is desperate for. We will lead and take to your streets. Now's the time for us to rise, to carry hope to hopeless eyes. And show this world that mercy is alive. We are not afraid. We will abandon all to hear your name on lips across the world. We will run in the wake of your love. Those are more than lyrics, that is a job description. If we're going to be a church who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone, let's pray together. God, you've called us to be sojourners and exiles. You've called us to not make our home here, but instead, in the power of your spirit, to be transformed. And God, we just confess that that is way harder than it sounds. I know some of us here have tried that and tried it over and over and over again. And we just fail. We keep beating our head against a wall. So God, we ask right now, would you help us? We want to be changed by the power of your spirit. Would you help us? If there's anybody here that needs to do business with you today, God, I pray that you would invade their heart, arrest them, and cause them to do business right here in this room. Father, we do love you. Thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.